Thursday mornings, I traditionally teach a class at 6 o'clock a.m. in Inglewood. As I wake up around 5 and leave my house around 5.30. So, obviously, I was quite torn as to whether or not to stay up to watch the debate, or whether I should just tape them and watch them the next day. I did the math and figured that all the news would be talking about it, and I couldn't find out the score before watching the game, so I stayed up very late watching the debate, as I'm sure many of you did also. Pre-games, the debates, the post-conversations, the fact-checkers, all of it. And there was one moment of the debate that I thought was the best moment that I've seen in the whole electoral process. Maybe you thought too. It happened at the end of the debate. It was when President Obama and his wife Michelle, Governor Romney, his wife Anne, and his children got on the stage shook hands with each other, shook hands with the moderator, Jim Lair, and they talked. They communicated. They engaged with each other face to face. I have no idea what the pleasantries they shared were about. Maybe they talked about the weather. Maybe they talked about how exhausting the campaign is. Maybe they talked about their children. But they seemed absolutely friendly and cordial. And what is a season that has grown increasingly unfriendly and uncordial. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, the level of rhetoric that seems to be happening through these electoral processes has gotten worse and worse. And in my opinion, it's just begging the bigger issue that we have of a major erosion in our civility. So of all the name-calling that's happened back and forth on both sides and accusations and finger-wagging, did you know that this was the first time that President Obama and Mitt Romney were in the same room in five years? It was the first time in five years that the former governor and the current president were face-to-face. But they knew that they'd be face-to-face for a long time. Most of us in this room knew that Mitt Romney was going to be the presumptive nominee to the Republican Party. It's not going to be a serious contender. We knew the president's been the president for the last three and a half years. But in five years, they haven't been in the same room. A lot of name-calling. A lot of finger-pointing. A lot of accusations. A lot of things that get down right that we've read on the paper and talked about in the news. But when they had that brief moment in Denver, after the debate, and they exchanged pleasantries, it seemed civil. It seemed like the America that I long for and remember, and I hope that you long for too. So why is that? Why in a world where over the last 18 months, there has been so many negative components to campaigning where they so kind and warm in front of each other. So some of the political pundits in our midst, they might say, well, it's because they have to. They're on television. They can't look mean and offensive. Sure, I can't argue with that logic, but I don't think that was the reason why. It's the reason why is that psychologically there's something that happens when we're face-to-face that doesn't happen from afar. They're nicer, they're warmer, they're more kind. But when we're far from people, it's much easier to get nasty. And that's what we've noticed happening in the world. My wife, Dory, speaks Hebrew fluently, and her grammar is perfect. But like most of us who want to improve 
that which we do well. She decided when we were in Israel this summer that she would take an ulpan for three weeks, which is an intensive summer course of Hebrew. She met for, I think, nine in the morning to one o'clock in the afternoon. And there in her class with 15 other people, which were like a mini United Nations, there were people from Germany, people from Holland, people from the States. Gloria was there. There was also a Palestinian woman who, as it happened, where they sat, was stationed right by Gloria, who sat next to each other. A beautiful young woman with a new baby. Don't recall her name. But I do recall the many conversations that Gloria and I shared at the end of her sessions each day when we would talk about what we learned in school over the summer. And Gloria would continue to tell me that she's had the most meaningful and powerful conversations with this young Palestinian woman who is a new mom and her beautiful child. And as she's telling me this day after day and story after story and so many commonalities that our tradition shares with her tradition and that we shared individually with this woman, I came to the conclusion that it's hard to hate from close. And it's easy to hate from afar. When you don't know somebody, you don't know their name, you don't know what they're about, it's really easy to spew accusations, to say they're all of this type, to say that they're wrong. It's very simple. It's a key equation. When they're in our face, when we unpeel the onion, when we just know who they are, when we find a little bit about their character, it's harder to do because we see the human side of them. It's harder for Romney or Obama to say those accusations right when they're looking in the eye, standing in front of their spouses and their children because they see so many of the characteristics that endear themselves to the other. They're not all hatred. They're not all bad. Because what we say and what we do from afar are not the same as what we do from a close. And the close always seems to be the more meaningful. If ever there was a great example of this, it's what the world has brought us through the internet, email, and Facebook. How many times have I received emails Notes, Facebook posts that have been absolutely disgusting, deplorable, rude, that have called me, my family, and my friends terrible things. And I've learned a response that helps me. I've got thick shoulders, and man, I can handle it. It hurts sometimes, I can handle it. And by the way, I'm not so special unique. Some of you have received those same kinds of emails, those same kinds of notes. What do you do when you get those? Here's the technique I came up with. I'm not going to respond to this by email. Let's meet over coffee. Ten out of ten times they refuse to meet over coffee. Why? Maybe a slim chance they will. Maybe face to face they'll have the conversation with you. But the tone and the level of rhetoric will never be the same when you're sitting across at a diner, even with someone you don't know, as they seem so comfortable behind a keyboard. Or the false firewall that seems to exist in Facebook. There's a story that circulated around the internet newscast this past week about Jennifer Livingston, who's a morning anchor who lives in Wisconsin. She's a woman who battles with her rape. She receives a post, as all public figures do, whether you're a newscaster, you're a sports analyst, you're a clergy person, you're going to be subject to some level of scrutiny. But for some reason or another, this post seemed to strike her nerves. The post is from a person she never met. We found out later his name is Kenneth Crown. And he wrote her in a post on her personal and public 
Facebook page. Jennifer, I'm worried because your physical condition hasn't improved for many years. And I don't think that you're a suitable example for this community's young people, and girls in particular, at your weight issue. Jennifer, you should know that obesity is one of the worst choices a person can make, one of the most dangerous habits to maintain. I leave you this note hoping that you'll consider your responsibility as a local public personality to prevent and promote a healthy lifestyle. Well, this news anchor was absolutely devastated. How dare a person she never met before, didn't know at all, open up publicly on Facebook to her thousands of fans a comment that everyone could see and read where he gets to hide behind. And basically, he said to her, you're fat, and you have a responsibility to girls not to be fat. He crushed this girl. And if someone who struggles with his weight, I will tell you, being fat isn't always a choice. It's hard. Something we wrestle with. It's not so simple as whether or not we're going to wear black pants or white pants. It's not a choice that way. It's something that's both in our metabolism, in our DNA, and sometimes in a medical issue, which in particular Jennifer deals with because of a thyroid condition she has. So she chose to take this moment where she considered herself to be bullied by this anonymous person who we later found out his name, and she responded on the air, which would become a viral response to bullying. She said to him, who are you? And what right do you have to comment on me and my body? You don't watch my show regularly. You're not a part of my family. You're not in my social orbit or circle. And you have nothing to comment on my influence on people in the world. I'm hurt and ashamed of you. And how dare you bully me or any other person by our appearance? Livingston later said that she got countless phone calls and emails from other people who dealt with all types of other issues, some weight battles and others, who thanked her because they had suicidal tendencies. She felt lonely, depressed. She felt like they couldn't battle the world anymore. Everyone that they faced was a particular look away, and they couldn't deal with it. And they thanked her for the courage to stand up in the face of wrong. To say what we wouldn't say otherwise, to fight this moment. In the Wall Street Journal, very timely this week, before this piece became viral, Elizabeth Bernstein wrote a piece, and it was entitled, Why Are We So Rude Online? And she came to the conclusion that I thought about for a very long time, and I shared with you earlier this morning. And that is, we're rude online because we can say rude things from afar, but we can't say it up close. This thing, this is still a toy, this computer. It's still just a gadget. And when I type these things, it can't hurt you so much. And even more, one of the psychologists who commented on the Wall Street Journal piece said, even more, what we notice is that you can't see another's reaction when you share that piece. When I hurl an insult your way, you can't see how they respond. You can't see their action face. You can't see their heartbreak in front of you. You can't see them melt in pain and in discomfort for the choice that they have made. Because from afar, we can be rude without dealing with the consequences. But from up close, so much harder to do. I share all of this with you on Shabbat, not only because it's been with on the airwaves over the past week, but because of the holiday of Sukkot, and why in particular I think it's called Manchin Hatenu, the holiday of rejoicing, why it's my favorite holiday. 
And all the years that I was a student at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and the years later that I worked there as a professional, we were gathering the two largest Sukkot in North America. They were housed at JTS. And in Manhattan, most people don't have Sukkot. You have to go to the community Sukkot that some buildings have, some synagogues have. You had to sign up a, a sheet and do a round robin for when you could eat there. So everyone came to the JTS Sukkot. And even though the fire marshal said 180 people could sit in that sukkah, it felt like there were 280 in there. We were shoulder to shoulder. And when you're shoulder to shoulder with people on what is a cold or rainy or dark night, and you're eating soup out of styrofoam bowls like this, you notice that there's a sense of connection and camaraderie and closeness that we can never anticipate. And what I noticed about the seminary is that in those days, the year always kicked off with Sukkot, always happened at the beginning of the academic calendar. And it was the most critical ingredient for starting off the school year, so that students in the rabbinical school, and the education school, and people in the community could gather together and share commonalities. If you went into the lunchroom at the seminary, often there are debates and discussions. But in the Sukkot, it was always done with respect, with love, with kindness, with understanding, with appreciation. Because the sense of being close physically meant a sense of connectivity emotionally and a sense of empathy and compassion. It didn't mean that everyone saw eye to eye, but it meant that they worked with kindness. It's like Obama and Romney didn't all of a sudden agree with all of their policies when their children hugged, but it meant that they saw the human parts of them that you can't say when you're standing in Denver and your opponent is in Iowa. It meant that they saw the real person inside. Our sukkah is a sukkah that sits on our deck. It's not too big, maybe eight by ten. We put 20, 22 people in there. We have to all kind of wiggle around to find our feet. There's something special. Let's all be physically close. Allow us, allow us to connect one to the other. Because if we don't connect that way, if our relationship becomes a relationship that's only done through virtual space or some email or from afar, it's so easy to dislike and to hate. But if we're close and we're physical and we're intimate, it gets uh, so much harder. The lesson for Sukkot is a lesson for every day. We live in a world where, ironically, it is so much easier to stay in touch, so much easier to communicate. And at the same time, we are growing farther and farther apart in our civility and our way for connecting our hearts. Let this be a reminder to all of us a reminder to stop and pause before we respond on the email, before we post something that might be offensive, before we engage someone by saying something from afar that we would never say to the other person's face. Let it be a barometer for us to use that as a level of engagement. And let it be a reminder for us that when we face those kinds of conflicts, to invite the conflict to the next step of asking for a personal meeting. Because it changes the dynamic. It's going to change the dynamic when we see the candidates continue to debate. It's going to change the dynamic when we see people who disagree come face to face. It's going to change the dynamic when we go to the Sakaa later today. It's going to change the dynamic in our lives. Let it be a reminder to all of us. You can hate from afar. You can't hate up close. And we should live in a world with less hate. And if we want to bring civility back and not let it continue to erode, 
I'm actually reminded of our responsibility to our close to each other, shake hands, to hug, and to feel that level of imminence and intimacy, and let that be reminded of peace.